Some time ago, uh, my family and I attended the wedding of one of our extended family members. It's a beautiful setting, perched up on a hill in the mountains. And uh, the old building there had been remodeled for occasions like this. It was really nice. And after the wedding, there was what you would expect. Great feast with all the usual elements. Food, drink, music, dancing, everyone having a wonderful time. Except one person. And after having a small plate of nibbles, this person quickly dismissed themselves and found a seat well isolated from the party. And they sat out there the rest of the night with arms crossed and a scowl on their face until the ride was ready to leave. I wonder, as a professing Christian, I know this person is, what do they think of Jesus and all of his parties? I mean, here we are in Matthew's Gospel once again hearing about how Jesus loves a good party. Skim through the Gospels, especially Matthew and Luke, and take note of how many times Jesus either talks about a party or attends one. Even John's Gospel opens with Jesus miraculously making some domaine serene Pinot Noir, just so the party doesn't die. One of the chief accusations that the Pharisees have for Jesus, and it's an accusation, mind you, is that he eats and drinks, that is, he parties with sinners. And Jesus never denied it. In Luke's Gospel, the Father throws a party like no other for the return of the prodigal son. And then the culmination of the world, as depicted by the Apostle John in the book of Revelation, is a party. The marriage supper of the Lamb. And when it's all said and done, when this world has reached its climax, God throws the biggest and best party the world's ever known. You want to know what the kingdom of God is like? A lot of people wonder that. Maybe you wonder that. What's God like? What's it like to live with and near God? Well, according to Jesus, in our text, it's like a king who has a thing for parties. Finally, a passage of scripture that college students can truly appreciate. Who's going to say no to a feast thrown by a king like this? When God throws a party, there are no budget constraints. The best wine, the best food, the decor is gold, silver, precious stones. Who's going to say no to that? Well, as it turns out, Getting people to respond to the invitation is more difficult than we think. The invitations had gone out quite a while ago, so the king sends his servants to tell the invited guests that it's time. But they're busy. They're busy enjoying Oregon's great outdoors, or binging Netflix, not sure it's worth all the trouble. So they say no. They're apathetic at first. And then the parable takes a rather dark turn. 
which is kind of unexpected because Jesus introduces the parable by saying, you want to know what the kingdom of God is like? It's going to be like this party. And then all of a sudden, the party gets really dark. This isn't stuff we read to our children at bedtime, right? Are you shocked by all this violent imagery in here? Some of us might find it uncomfortable, but maybe not too off-putting. I mean, look at those invitees and what they did to the messengers. Did you pick up on that? At first, they ignored the call from the king, and they went on their hikes and their TV binges. But then later, they revealed their true feelings for the king. And they murdered the messengers. So, the fact that the king takes vengeance on these scoundrels, it's probably justified, right? And it also makes us feel ever so slightly better about ourselves. They got what they deserve. Now, it's not what I deserve, mind you. I'm not like they are. I'm a good person. Well, now, hang on. Before we take comfort in the demise of the uppity and the haughty, we do well to listen carefully to the parable. Jesus is clearly sending an ominous warning to someone. But to whom? Well, these invitees who killed the king's servants are apparently the insiders. The ones who are close enough to the king and his family to be invited to his son's party. They're the ones who know the palace decorum, who can make the place sparkle a bit brighter with their presence, with their witty sense of humor. Let's think of it this way. They're the Pharisee who's praying in gratitude to God that he's not like the losers around him. Remember that guy? They're the older brother to the prodigal who'd rather sit outside with a scowl on his face and arms crossed than party inside with his younger brother. They're the ones who believe that the conflicts and disappointments in their lives clearly lie at the feet of other people. So these people tell you about all the good things they've done and how the missteps are yours, not theirs. And every time they open their mouths, they remind you of their stellar resume. You know people like this? We all know people like that. Maybe we are people like that. Self-justification, we might call it. How do we know we're good people? How do we know we deserve to be at the party? Well, we've earned it, of course. We've worked hard. We pay our taxes. We attend church most Sundays. We say thank you to the barista. We don't cheat on our spouses or our exams. Yes, good people indeed. In Jesus' day, these insiders were religious, very religious, the religious establishment, in fact. And so putting it all together, Jesus' warning is to the religious people who believe that a few good works 
and a clean background check are enough to gain entrance into Jesus' kingdom, into his party. Jesus is talking to those of us who walk the streets and who shake our head at all of those bad people out there who are not like we are. Now, before you get angry at me, if you're not already, most of us, we just want violence and lives that are destroyed and desecration of the environment to go away, right? That's, that's what we want. What, what's wrong with that? So when I complain about the state of things in my city or our world, I'm complaining for good reasons, because I really do want what's good. Okay. But how do we know when we've crossed the line from being a concerned citizen about the state of our society to being a Pharisee who's shaming the scum of the earth and trusting in our own righteousness. Do you see? It can be a very thin line. And we can cross it without noticing it at times. So how do we know? How do we know I've moved from genuine love and concern to looking down my Here's a good way. There may be others. We should ask ourselves how we feel about attending the party of Jesus with the meth addicts, the kleptomaniacs, the ones covered in their own refuse, the college students who are so inebriated that public debauchery seems like a reasonable How do we feel about being an honored guest with them? Yeah, can you imagine yourself there? In that party, with those sort of people? We pause for a moment, don't we? But it gets worse. How do we feel about being forced to change clothes and put on the same outfit as the rest of the bad people? Did you catch that? This little appendix in verse 11 is a real test for us. When the king finds the guest dressed in his own outfit, the message that the guest is sending is that he's just too good to be dressed like all of those bad people who've been brought into it. He doesn't want the king's grace. He doesn't want to be forced into con conversation, or worse, forced to love the street people. They don't deserve the king's party. He does, and he gets there on his own merits, or so he believes. To get into Jesus' party, we have to admit we are on the same level as the worst of the worst. There's something about this parable that would be easy to miss if we're not careful. Verse 10. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Everyone was invited. 
everyone. The religious, the self-justifiers, and the people who don't have to be told that they're no good because they already know that. Everyone is invited to a party with this king. And that's what the good news of God in Jesus is. It doesn't matter if you're a white-collar, hide-your-flaws sort of person, or if your mess is displayed for the world to see, you're invited. You're invited to the party of the kingdom of God. And guess what? You don't even have to clean yourself up and get your life in order to get in. The king does that for you. Did you get that in the parable? The king dressed them in the wedding clothes. And he dresses you like you belong there in the palace with the king. So just come. Come to the party. Come to the table. Come with all your mess, hidden or exposed. Come just as you are. But you may not remain as you are. Not if you want to come to this party. Come just as you are. Now that's a common mantra in our day, isn't it? We hear that a lot. God loves you for who you are. Well, now if you mean by that, what the Apostle Paul said, while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly, for the sinners, then yes, of course. If that's what we mean, 100%. But if you mean, God loves us with all our sinful ways, and is happy to let us stay true to ourselves and keep on thinking and loving and doing all the stuff that's contrary to God and His kingdom. Well, then we've gotten this God confused with another. This God loves the ungodly unconditionally and gives Himself for the ungodly. But when you come into His party, He dresses you with new clothes. That image in the Scripture signifies a transformed life. You can see this in the Old Testament. You can see it all the way through Revelation. A sign in Revelation of the redeemed who are with God is that they are dressed in white robes given to them from God. They have been transformed their lives. So maybe now we can understand the insanity of the invited guests who refuse to come What's behind it? Wait, so you're saying that coming to King Jesus means he doesn't simply affirm my natural impulses? I've got to change my life? Do you mean I must stop loving certain things and behaving certain ways, and I must start loving other things and behaving in other ways? Do you mean I have to admit that all my good works are worthless? I gotta get dressed. And I have to be changed. And I have to be different. Yeah. And worse than that, I gotta hang out with all of these crazy people that Jesus has brought into his church. I heard Will Willimon say one time when he was at Duke University, 
sorry to say those words in your presence, Pete, but uh, when he was at Duke University, uh, he said, we have a wonderful thing here at Duke called the admissions department, and it keeps all the riffraff out. He said, but in the kingdom of God, there isn't anything like that. And Jesus just seems to bring in all the wrong people. And most of us, we don't have any problem with Jesus. We just don't like his friends. <laughs> I think that's a bit of what's going on in this parable with the people who have been invited and refused to come. We're all in the same level playing field. I'm just as sinful as they are. I need new clothing just as much as they do. Those people. And so they killed the postal workers, the messengers. And judgment, as far as Jesus is concerned, is for the sweet, good, well-dressed, upstanding citizen, the ones who cherish their dignity and can't imagine being told no. Why in this sermon on such a somber note, right? Because that's not really the central point of the parable. The point of the parable isn't as much the insanity of the invitees who resorted to violence rather than attend the party. The point of the parable is a king who will do absolutely anything to have his hall filled with guests. Any sort of guest. Go out into the roads, into the places where the lepers and the unclean and the nasty ones reside. Go find those people and bring them in. And Jesus is telling us that God's grace is extravagant. The invitation to join the party is indiscriminate. Anyone and everyone, the bad and the good, and some of us linger on the fringes of faith in Jesus because we've never seen how sinful we really are and how deeply and extravagantly and outrageously God loves us. How extravagantly He loves you. Why do you think at the end of all history God throws a party? Why a party? Because he finally got around the corner on this troubled world and he managed to work it all out? Because he finally overcame evil after trying for millennia? Is that the party? No. Listen to Revelation 19. Then I heard what seemed to be a large crowd that sounded like a roaring flood and loud thunder all mixed together. And they were saying, Praise the Lord! Our Lord God, all-powerful, now rules as King, so we will be glad and happy and give Him praise. The wedding day of the Lamb is here, and His bride is ready. And she will be given a wedding dress made of pure and shining linen. This linen stands for the good things God's people have done. Then the angel told me, Put this in writing. God will bless everyone who is invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. The end of history is a feast 
is a party because the culmination of everything is that God has us, you, with Him for eternity. It's His celebration. He's happier than you are. Because this was the point of everything from the very beginning. And God has come in the flesh and has died so that he can hang out with you for eternity. Yeah, the parable does highlight the insanity of saying no to such a God. But the real point is look at the extravagance of this God. He's so intent on having a house full of guests that he will do absolutely anything to get you there. The invitation has been sent. The party's ready. All that's missing is you. Amen.